Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at BFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rachel Waldoff and Robert Litchfield, the authors of Digital Nomads, In Search of Freedom, Community, and meaningful work in the new economy. In the space of a few weeks this spring, organizations around the world learned that many traditional in-person jobs could in fact be performed remotely. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, however, some individuals were already utilizing new options for personal mobility and online work to strike out on their own. In the new book, Digital Nomads, Rachel and Robert examined the growing uh, demographic of individuals disaffected by the daily grind of office work who have left the US and Europe to work remotely from the low-cost global hubs around the world. These digital nomads seek out communities of like-minded, unconventional people, what they call a tribe, in places like Indonesia, Thailand, Colombia, Mexico or Portugal. Taking advantage of advancements in mobility, technology, and telecommunication, digital nomads are venturing around the world in search of a new way of living and working. Through dozens of interviews and several students living in a digital nomad hub in Bali, Indonesia, Waldorf and Litchfield show why digital nomads leave their conventional lives behind, arguing that the creative class and millennial workers, though successful, often feel that world-class cities are desirable jobs are anything but paradise. Digital nomads follows these new workers through their transitions into freelancing, entrepreneurship, and remote work, and explains how digital nomads create fluid, intimate communities abroad, complete with a preface that addresses how COVID-19 is inevitably changing the landscape of work, Digital Nomads offers insights into the new ways people are balancing freedom, work, community, and creative fulfillment in the digital age. Well, Rachel, Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. It's nice to be here. My pleasure. So, to begin with, as we're living through these unprecedented times uh, during the pandemic, although we, we already had some time to get our head around it a little bit, I would like to ask uh, you first, how has this pandemic influenced you and your work? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, on one hand, I think obviously launching a book, um, we felt you know, a little bit disappointed that this was going to be happening during a pandemic. On the other hand, before the book, uh, before the pandemic hit, a lot of people didn't really know that much about remote work. And 
fortunately for us, now everybody knows about it, and it's a big part of the conversation almost everybody is having, um, whether it's at school or work, um, politics, you know, everyone trying to now figure out how to organize work and lives around this. And so I think our work is more relevant than ever, possibly right now. Yeah, Did I would agree with that. And I would just echo uh, the idea that, I mean, even nine or 10 months ago, we had people telling us, oh, remote work. I mean, who cares about that? And uh, certainly no one's saying that now. Did you feel that your expertise have come really handy with even within your really close circles, for example, at work with friends or perhaps at the school? Absolutely. I mean, I we're writing now a lot of pieces giving advice based on our research about what works and how to structure your time and how to try to enjoy or, or carve out enjoyment um, and to break out of monotony and to make life at home more interesting and more fulfilling. Um, and in addition, I think both of us adapted really well to the pandemic at work compared to a lot of our colleagues and even our young students because we had already been engaging and thinking about these issues for years. And so when it happened, uh, for instance, I got very high teaching evaluations this semester, even though I was online. And I think it was because I had a growth mindset around, uh, around changing the way I'm working and adapting to the way things are changing around technology and work. And I think that maybe we wouldn't have had that kind of uh, attitude had we not done this project, because, um, you know, being in contact with these extreme remote workers, uh, the digital nomads really helped us to see uh, how to approach work differently in that kind of environment and, and what things uh, to focus on differently. Um, even things as simple as, you know, really understanding how to communicate on platforms like Zoom and what have you. Uh, these are things that the nomads have been working on for years. And uh, and as a result of studying them, we, you know, were kind of ahead of the curve a little bit on uh, some of those issues, I think. So in addition to the transferable skills that you already possessed, has uh, this uh, time period sort of made you learn something new or um, gain some new skills, perhaps? I mean, certainly neither of us had taught online before. So we both had to learn that starting in March of last year. We came, we went, you know, spring break happens and we didn't return. And we both have been working from home with also two children at home, which is very different from, uh, you know, an ideal remote working lifestyle, which we we want to emphasize to people who are feeling negative about remote work that it wouldn't really be like this outside of a pandemic. And so we don't want the pandemic to sort of um, turn people against remote work. We want them to understand that this is not like the way it would actually work um, outside of the constraints of, you know, this, you know, a deadly, a potentially deadly illness being spread. Um, but yeah, you know, we had to learn how to do our teaching. We had to um, hold meetings, thesis defenses, dissertation defenses, do our research, do um, get our book edited. Um, I'm a deputy editor of a journal. Um, I'm incoming chair of uh, the uh, community and urban section of the American Sociological Association. And so there were lots of meetings at different time zones and figuring out how to do that in a way that's fair and equitable. 
um, and listening to my students' needs and understanding their constraints and understanding that different people have different access to tools and time and space and just coming into everything with a lot more compassion and um, not being so focused on evaluating and rules and the way things used to be and getting back to normal and instead trying to envision a different way through this. And I think it, I think for the most part, it's not ideal, but I think it's been fairly successful at the best it could have been. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I agree. I think that, uh, you know, we've all learned a lot about remote working uh, and, and how to uh, how to make this successful. And, and I think that uh, I would say that this starts into one of the main themes of the book, which is uh, the idea that um, this isn't a normal remote working situation and that a, a key part of success in a normal remote working situation is to figure out how uh, to get access to the community that one needs uh, as a person and as a worker um, while working in a remote context. And so this is one of the big problems, if you will, I think that, that that's facing people right now as we scale up on remote work in a big way and, and workers and leaders alike are asking themselves, uh, you know, how, how do we create community around work? And uh, digital nomads certainly have some have created some answers for themselves around work. And, and, and an interesting part of their answer is that it's not about community over Zoom. That's not where you find it. You find community in person um, by locating yourself around uh, other people who are like you. This is really great uh, to hear such a uh, such a can-do attitude even during these uh, quite trying times. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about you. So, could you tell us more about yourself and your academic background as well? Yes, I'm an urban sociologist, um, and um, I'm a professor of sociology. I got my PhD in sociology from Ohio State, specializing in crime and community. And my research has focused on mostly neighborhoods, crime, urban redevelopment, um, racial and ethnic differences in neighborhoods, uh, neighborhood racial change, creative class cities, housing. I'm very interested in quality of life issues and what makes places livable for people. And that's sort of what got us started in this project was working with graduate students to think about, you know, why would you want to live in a certain place? What makes a place work for you? What makes a place not work for you? What are the push factors that make you want to leave where you live? What are the pull factors that make you want to move someplace else? And I actually had no idea it would evolve into something like this, of course. But um, I started doing research with graduate students on uh, students that were interested in living in cities, students who were, had aspired to creative class jobs. And, um, and then I did a project with a graduate student on people who work in coffee shops. And then I just became more and more interested in evolving uh, lifestyles around neighborhoods, uh, housing, community, and work. Rob? Yeah, so uh, I'm a management professor. And uh, my research uh, focuses on uh, creativity and innovation primarily. And I've historically been interested, especially in the motivational aspects uh, of creativity at work, uh, the motivations and identities uh, of creative workers. 
And, and so I think that uh, the, the synergy here between our views is that this is, uh, this is a group of people who are largely creative professionals um, involved in uh, what uh, Richard Florida in his series of books has called the creative class, right? People who are working in uh, knowledge work broadly defined. And uh, that, uh, that uh, you know, my interest in that is longstanding uh, from, from the creativity in, at work side. And so uh, bringing this together with Rachel's interests in community uh, really seemed like a, an ideal research opportunity for us uh, to work together. These are absolutely fascinating fields that you study. So can you tell me where, when did you get interested in all of it? Or maybe some mentors really inspired you or um, really ha- helped you develop your interests? Well, as I said, I, I've been teaching urban sociology since, I mean, I started teaching it in graduate school. I became very interested in cities from the time I was a child. I went to, um, in the U.S., we have something called magnet schools, where some kids are bussed into um, uh, a school that is for higher achieving or, you know, there, it's very, it's very debatable how good this actually is for cities and children and schools. But I was in a program like this and I, starting in fifth grade, I would take the bus, the elevated train and another bus into school all the way fifth through 12th grade. It took me almost an hour and a half or two hours to get to school that way. Um, and it was in the middle, it was in the nineties, late eighties, early nineties, middle of the crack epidemic in Philadelphia. And I just became really interested in neighborhoods and cities and different groups and where they live and segregation and homelessness and just people. I was a huge people watcher from just being on the train. And I was just an urbanist starting at a really young age. And I just became really interested in lifestyles and how they vary by where people live. And so I started, you know, I went to graduate school. I, I got a job, oddly, at a very rural place. We live in, in Pittsburgh, but I teach in West Virginia, which is very rural. And I realized I needed to approach class really from the very beginning, talking to suburbanite and rural students about cities. And I just started speaking to them and, and selecting the things I would teach and talking to them about my research um, uh, and sort of explaining to them from the ground up how cities are special, how they're different. And then they would tell me what they don't like about cities. And it just, my teaching research started sort of feeding back on each other, trying to understand why people don't like cities or what things about cities they don't like. And then I had students that were, who were interested in living in cities and they started to want to do research on where people choose to live and mobility thoughts and preferences And um, so it's really through working with my students um, and understanding their evolving interests that my own ideas began to um, evolve and change and emerge. And that's how I got interested in creative class cities. Rob? Excellent. And Rob? Yeah. uh, Well, uh, when I was younger, I was a musician. And I've always been, uh, in terms of my social life, very much around musicians, artists, and gravitated towards creative people uh, in my in my life. Uh, and that certainly continued even while I was uh, after college, when I was at work and through graduate school and, uh, and, and in my younger life as a musician. 
And, and I think that, uh, you know, that indirectly played a role, although I will say that when I initially encountered creativity as a research area in graduate school, I was sort of perplexed by the whole thing. I was thinking, yeah, well, why is that something you would study? Uh, it's just something you go do. And, uh, and yet um, later on, when I started to uh, become more active as a researcher, I realized that uh, some of the ideas that I had um, really had the potential to contribute to uh, that research stream, and, and that turned out to be correct. And and so I sort of began going down that path, just realizing that I had um, some ideas to contribute there. And then as I began to study it, I began, of course, to get uh, more interested into uh, 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 into the various aspects of of creativity in the workplace and in in different uh, realms of human life. And uh, and so it just progressed from there. And this is, you know, what we're doing now is just kind of a natural follow on uh, of that progression. Yeah, and this book is really a beautiful amalgam of the multifaceted expertise that both of you bring. So can you tell us um, how you came about to uh, really sitting down and writing it, uh, putting everything together? Yeah, so Rob and I have... um we've collaborated several times before we've written about the creative class we've written about um identity and police and how that changes over time um regarding gun control um we wrote an article about business careers and the utility of sociological um perspective in business careers so we we've collaborated many times um we're married and have children so there's a major collaboration there um and we just talk about our work all the time and it's our work is our passion and it's our identity and I started having these ideas about taking um, a sabbatical that was longer um, and because I had my child one of my children during my sabbatical um, no, that's a long story there and I, I kind of felt robbed of my sabbatical and I wanted to take a year off and we talked about using that opportunity to go someplace and is there a project we could do together and i told him about this community i had read about um called digital nomads and i had been doing research on it um through my research on co-working at starbucks um and through my research on the creative class and he also was interested in that because we wrote a paper about the creative class and I just started investigating and it looked viable. I submitted an IRB, which is a, um, for people that may not know, it's just a, um, a, a, a laying out the protocol of how I would do this work um, ethically. And it was accepted. And I planned a trip on my own to Bali. And I went alone. And I have not traveled much. Um, and I went for almost three weeks. And while I was there, I had great luck meeting digital nomads and talking to them. And I actually even interviewed many people while I was there. Um, and I enjoyed it. I went to co-working spaces. I went to events. Um, I had long discussions with people about why they were doing this. People were very eager to talk to me. Um, and from there I came home and I said, I think this is going to work. And we got uh, we did something called snowball sampling. I got contacts and we made a schedule. We interviewed uh, at least two people a week for about uh, via Skype um, at odd hours because of the time difference. We did that for almost a year. 
um, two hours, two interviews a week. Um, and then by the time April rolled around, we moved with our family to Indonesia and did our field work there and Rob well, took his sabbatical as well. You know, I will say that that I love your story and it, it makes it sound a little bit more purposeful than it really was at the very beginning. Okay. As I remember it a little, <laughs> a little differently that we, we, in a way we did sort of luck into this group. Um, okay. Rachel, Rachel was looking at some different opportunities and, and we were, she had, she had some dim awareness here, but then as she started looking into um, possible opportunities for getaways, she, she sort of came upon this information uh, in a bigger way about this group of digital nomads. And then, and that's when she started to, you know, to pour into this investigation. And, and, and the reason I think that that serendipity is a little bit important is that pretty quickly we realized, oh, wow, this is an understudied thing. This is something that could blow up and be really interesting. Right. And, and we, and it's, it's important because what we, the typical way you might do this as a researcher is to say, oh, okay, well now let me put in some grant applications and wait through some long processes uh, of approval and all that to maybe get some funding to go do that. But I, I think we took ourselves more of an artistic uh, attitude towards us at the beginning in the sense that we sort of said, you know, no, this is our chance to really do something that we think is cool uh, on a sabbatical in terms of a major project. Uh, we're not get, if we wait until we you know get grant funding and go through all that process, it'll never happen. The moment will have passed. Somebody else will have taken up the mantle, and, and that'll be that, right? And, and so it was one of those things where we we recognize that there is a timeliness to this component, and and that we need if we really were committed to this, we needed to really seize the moment and go for it. And and so Rachel took that first trip to Bali with the idea of like, let's find out is this something that we should invest, you know this time and money in in the long term and make it happen and you know came back and said yes and, and then we went from there this is absolutely fascinating and especially that you mentioned that you moved your whole family to become a digital nomad whereas mostly if people have heard this term at all they will probably associate it with somebody who is single who's young who's tech savvy so can you just explain to us what sort of digital nomads are there demographically or socioeconomically sure i mean for first well first of all we weren't real we didn't really become digital nomads we were always in a researcher role with them um but mm -hmm. we as professors i mean i think rob and i both always knew that we did not want to have nine to five jobs not rob necessarily but we both because he had a job in business and I didn't, but I always knew that I did not want to work in a traditional office. And I had a, uh, my parents both hated their jobs. It was a big, that's like the main narrative of my life is that work is horrible, live for the weekend, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and I just always hated jobs where I was on the clock waiting for my time to end, you know? So uh, being a professor was very important to me to like have a flexible schedule a long time ago. I mean, this is like in the nineties, you know? Um, so I think I really empathize with the mindset of millennials and younger workers that now, especially with technology, like why am I in the office for no reason? You know, I had a lot of empathy for that. Whereas a lot of people my age, uh, millennials were rubbing them the wrong way. And so I sort of stood out. Now, I think a lot of professors understand younger people, maybe more than people our age who are not professors do, but because uh, we're with them all the time. But 
I think Rob and I already had a lot of empathy for the mindset that why do you have to be at work from eight to six or whatever it is, especially now, you know, if you have a knowledge job, knowledge worker job. Um, so yeah, so we went there and there, there were many different, there are families that are there that are digital nomads. That is not the norm by any means. Um, and it is very difficult to do that. And I don't want to sugarcoat that. And I don't want to make it seem like, you know, just have a good attitude and anyone can do this with their family. That's not the case. And there are a lot of gender dynamics and, um, class-based dynamics that go along with that. Um, however, the main groups that we saw there were that, and we and this is how we describe it in the book, we use an analytical framework that focuses on how long are people staying um, in these places. And what I learned when I went on my first trip there and doing my research there was it seemed like there were these three groups from talking to people. And the way I learned this was because they would talk to me about you know, are you a digital, you know, the first thing to try to find out is, are you a digital nomad? Who are you? How long are you going to be here for? You know, that kind of stuff. And when I went into the digital nomad community, they would say to me, oh, okay, I was afraid that you were a honeymooner. Meaning like, I, I thought you were just like coming here, checking it out, you know, um, buying some elephant pants and, uh, you know, going to yoga, <laughs> checking out these places, um, taking some selfies and leaving, you know, that kind of thing. And I said, no, no, is that a thing? And then they would tell me about the honeymooners. And then they didn't call them that, you know, I, these are sociological, anthropological terms. And then the next group that they kind of talked about were people who stay a little bit longer and become more committed to trying to set up a business or set up a freelancing um, uh, situation working remotely. And we called those people, um, uh, we called those people, um, visa runners, visa runners, because you can only stay in uh, a place for a certain period of time. And then you have to get your visa renewed. Um, in Bali, it's two months. And so they, uh, renew their, they basically often go to Singapore, they renew their visa, come right back. And then they stay another two months and you can keep doing that. Um, and so that shows like an extra level of commitment. It shows more social ties to the place-based community in Indonesia and Bali. Um, and then the third group that we were really surprised to discover, we had met people who'd lived there for years and we were like, oh, so you're not really a nomad. And they would say, oh, no, no, I am, I am, I'm just based here. We travel, you know, and, and I said, oh, but you live here, you know, and they were like, no, no. And, and I, they explained to me how they view themselves. They identify as nomads, but to really get business done, it's just a myth. You can't travel, you know, you can't be like this jet setter stamping your passport every week and really have a successful business. It's, it's challenging to do that. And so the people who are often successful with their businesses don't travel on that kind of cycle the way perhaps some media outlets like to depict them. And so that was the framework we used. It was about how long people were staying in this community and then what happens once they get there. Because for me, in urban sociology, this is one of the really big paradoxes. Like in urban sociology, community is based on length of residence. So the longer you live someplace, the more you develop social networks and the more you develop intimacy. That's not what's going on with digital nomads. Their intimacy is not based on length of residence. And um, it's based on like-mindedness and it's based on having these this very strange sort of experience of leaving everything behind 
coming to this place, the select population coming to this place, and then they build intimacy immediately because they tell stories about, tell me why you left. And they tell each other why they left. And stories of why they left are often really traumatic, um, to, uh, you know, depending on what you think of as traumatic. Sometimes they're actual personal traumas, divorce, death. Um, depression, things like that. But sometimes it's trauma that happened related to their jobs. So for instance, an example I'll give is like, let's say you're 30 years old and you've had the same job for eight years and you're in Manhattan or you're in London or you're in Dublin and you work all week and Friday and Saturday, you just do laundry and feel depressed and dread going to work on Monday. And you're like on the verge of tears about going to work on Monday and you do it again. And you're just, you know, kind of going through these motions. Yes, you may look successful. You may be at Facebook. You may be at Google. You may be at these big companies, but you're miserable and you're very, um, you're feeling, you know, mental health effects from that. You may be bullied at work. You may be abused at work. Um, so those kinds of stories um, build a lot of intimacy very quickly. If you talk to someone about that the first night you meet them, which we did many, many, many times, um, and they do with each other, um, that's very different from how you make friends in conventional life back home, where you're like having much more superficial conversations, staying away from hot topics, um, being afraid to be vulnerable about your weaknesses. Um, so, so that's um, a major difference in the literature about digital nomad communities versus how community is built in conventional life. That's very interesting. So you have outlined that there's a huge variability in the timescales that people tend to be digital nomads and also a huge variation in demographics. And it's, it appears that the sociological aspects of why people tend to do it um, focus not, prim- not only, but primarily of perhaps trying to change your current situation, maybe running for something to uh, to uh, sort of to leave the conventional life behind, uh, as, as you say, the conventional um, day-to-day job. So, Rob, uh, can you perhaps uh, tell us whether there's any, whether there are any specific benefits to working as a digital nomad and being in that uh, in that space, perhaps bettering yourself or uh, finding community or managing your work? Well, I think that digital nomads are trying to, generally speaking, they're trying to reinvent themselves completely in terms of their work and work lives. Um, and sometimes, very often, um, in terms of their their uh, non-work lives as well. Uh, but but they're, uh, I, so I think what, in terms of the benefits they're seeking, they're, they're so multidimensional. Uh, on one level, uh, you have the, the idea that they, they definitely... Their, their highest value, I would say, is for freedom, and they're looking for an autonomy, a, a con- sense of control over their lives um, that they did not have, they did not feel they had before. And, and we define their value for freedom as being one um, that's a little bit more than just an individualistic value, though it, though it is. Um, it's also a, kind of almost a rebellion against the structures that they found themselves in. Uh, so a lot of people that we we met, they're, they're really consciously uh, stepping out and, and stepping out, not just on their own, but away from 
uh, the thing that they had before and kind of in opposition to the way that organizational life in particular is conducted in Western societies and in large cities. Um, so they're looking for that kind of control over their destiny. Um, they're also looking to um, have uh, a, a better everyday life and environment around them. They want to be surrounded by people who share those views. Um, they want to seek out uh, uh, communities of other people who are like them, and they feel energy from that. Uh, and so, um, you know, in psychology, for instance, there's there's this idea that people um, uh, uh, perform differently around others uh, when they're working around others, um, and that it can be good or bad, right? That the, the, the effects of of having others around when you're uh, when you're working can be positive or negative. Um, but that uh, 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 for these people, I think that they generally feel that having other people who share their values around while they're working is uh, is largely a, a very positive thing, and that um, this is something that uh, that they're very much seeking and that they see as a benefit. And then, of course, there's the environmental benefits of the kinds of locations they choose. Right? There's the uh, you know the sun and and sand and tropics and the beautiful. Uh, natural environment of Bali. Um, there's the the fact that most of these locations that digital nomads are choosing are in um, lower cost uh, areas of the world, in uh, Southeast Asia, for instance, um, or perhaps in in Portugal if we're in Western Europe. So someplace that's a little bit less expensive, um, places where they can they can manage the cost of their lifestyle um, in order to um, to to get themselves uh, access to the to the freedom again by not having to um, put so much earnings pressure on themselves that they had if they were in New York or London or Paris um, or Sydney or someplace like that. I was just going to say that I think one of the big surprising findings to many people, when people imagine um, digital nomads, they imagine people like hunched over their computer and they don't need anybody and they're fine to work alone. But one of the really exciting findings of our research is that these people who identify as location independent, they want to be face to face with other people who are working remotely. And they form bonds with people, even in places with all this population turnover, because they want to be with like minded others that support them through their dreams about work and lifestyle. And so they view in place community as crucial not just for like getting by day to day, but for their work and for people boosting them and helping them achieve their dreams about their work and the lifestyle that they want to have. Um, and that's a really interesting topic because so many people today, especially like with the election and, and what's going on in the U.S. and Brexit, that, you know, community is lost, community is in decline, people aren't civil, we're not in agreement, our society is very disorganized right now. And with nomads, they're looking to be with people where they have some consensus about some fundamental issues, not about um, religion necessarily or joining bowling leagues or labor unions or churches, but more about their collective identities, about what's really important to them. And so it's a really optimistic story about saving community um, and, and making it work in the digital age. Um, so I, I think that that was something that is just really unique and really interesting, this shared values component 
of community that people assume is just there because you live near somebody. But that's not actually true, that people, um, instead of just being, you know, having these constraints of, well, I'm born here, so I just, I'm limited to the people who's, you know, who live on my block, um, all the provincial things about where I live, you know, my kin relationships, my non-kin relationships. Here, people are thinking about, well, what else do I want in community? Who do I really want to be with? And they, a refrain that they say is, you can't change the people you're with, but you can change the people you're with. You know what I mean? And that's an <laughs> interesting idea that you know, we, we know that the people you surround yourself with are really important to your well-being. And if you're around a face-to-face community that is not encouraging you to have work that's meaningful, have interactions that are meaningful, have a lifestyle where you live a life that actually makes you happy, then you know how much of a community is it so we talk a lot about like the core values of digital nomads and how that separates them from i would say mainstream people who would not choose this lifestyle i also think it 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 makes a uh, an important point about um what community is in terms of the values versus in terms of the location stability um there's so much of a grounding assumption that we make good communities by having people in the same place for long periods of time uh and and what these uh nomads are are saying is that yeah we can have community really quickly if everyone's open to it and if um if uh, we can be around people who are who we perceive as having this shared values component that that we can have community happen very quickly and we can experience this sense of community even without uh, a long like uh, length of residence and of course in the pandemic with us all under lockdown at various times uh, what many people are discovering is that in fact they they don't necessarily have a lot of people uh, around them who are necessarily uh, sharing their values uh, mm-hmm. and, and many people may see, oh, my gosh, the people around me are not like me. They don't have the same values as, as me. Certainly in the United States, we've just had a, uh, an election where, uh, you know, people came out on very, very different sides of it. And in, 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 in a lot of areas of the country, you know, that's visible in, in yard signs and political banners and things like that, that all of a sudden have reminded people that, hey, I'm really different from some of my neighbors. Uh, and, and maybe I don't share values with them very much at all. But, you know, traveling alone is very lonely. And so intimacy is flourishes there. You know, the founder of um, one of the co-working spaces told us that loneliness is what drives the success of the co-working spaces because, you know, people join the co-working space sometimes before they even have housing. You know, um, they they go and... They're excited, you know, they're free, they're away from their job, they're excited to leave the cubicle and kind of goodbye to all that. But then they get there and they do feel lonely. And so the co-working space provides a lot of um, needs that they, gives them a lot of what they were looking for during long-term travel. Um, And it's not superficial. There are very deep exchanges that they have there. They're talking about you know, their personal development rituals. They're talking about self-help books that they're reading, um, which a lot of business people um, read. They're talking about their health consciousness and and what's going on with that and their spirituality. Um, They, you know, they they talk about TED Talks they enjoy. 
Um, so these, this is how intimacy is created. They, they have, and, 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 the, and Bali and all digital nomad hubs foster this. They facilitate intimacy. They offer programs that make intimacy happen. Um, you don't have all these obligations at home. So you have to go, I'd love to have coffee with you, but I can't, I have to go home. I have half an hour, I have 15 minutes. No, you have time. You know, if you go to lunch with someone, if you want to work later that night and have a longer lunch because you're having an important conversation, you can. And so there are a lot of rituals around telling your story. And I'm sure if you've been watching or reading any business books, Brene Brown, um, so many people are into storytelling now, right? Well, this is what part of nomadism, you tell your story. Why did you leave home? Why are you here? How can I support you? How can I give you support? Let's explore this together. These are not the kinds of conversations you would have necessarily at a Starbucks in Pittsburgh while you're working on your laptop, you know? Interesting. And can you just uh, define the differences between the digital nomad lifestyle from workation or working holiday, or are these all the same? Why don't you take that, Rob? Uh, so they, there certainly is an element of, uh, of overlap in the honeymooner segment that we identify, people who are just uh, beginning into the lifestyle. And some of those people... Um, may well uh, be experimenting with it and go through a number of cycles of going back to their home country. And, and we talk about that a little bit in, in, in the book as well. And, but I think that the, the work tourism phenomenon that we're talking about uh, a bit mm -hmm. in the book as well, there's two things going on here. One, the digital nomads are people who have by and large broken with um, their lives back in the West and committed to a different way of living. But we also saw this work tourism phenomenon where people were coming and taking extended um, time away uh, to work on a project, to join a remote working community, to get access to new networks and insights, but never intending to keep this as a long-term thing, um, always intending to go back to a job, to go back to a business, to go back to something specific at home, uh, not jettisoning their possessions or anything like that. Um, these are people who are coming, they're essentially taking work as almost what we might consider a vacation. Um, it, they are touristing for the purpose of working uh, in these communities and gaining access to the networks, to the shared values, to the community learning that exists in these areas. Now, we didn't see really Americans doing this because in the United States, uh, vacation times are just frankly too short um, in jobs. But we saw significant numbers of people from Europe uh, who were engaged in this, people who could take, say, three or four weeks off at a time and go do something. Um, whereas in the US, to be able to take three or four weeks off from a job would be a, a very rare uh, kind of uh, phenomenon in most organizations. Um, but we saw people from uh, uh, in a, a number of different uh, European cultures uh, there and, uh, and uh, taking these kinds of extended work holiday kinds of, uh, of things, but not, not being primarily on holiday and also doing a little bit of work, actually coming on uh, a tourist experience for the purpose of work being the central uh, thing that they were trying to accomplish. But I think it's a great point that you make, which is like, you know, sure. I mean, people open their laptops and work when they're on vacation. And some of us do that sometimes, but this concept of work tourism that Rob and I developed in the book, 
I mean, we're, we're really interested in, in this idea, especially with younger people who really care a lot about work being meaningful and trying to find a way to make work matter for them. Um, instead of like, I think what people might imagine is like a pure leisure pursuit, but with remote work, technology does allow people to earn income from employment or entrepreneurship online from anywhere. And so a lot of young and middle-aged people want to take advantage of this possibility that they could be free and untethered. And so we sort of talk about this idea of like work tourism as adults who are engaged in what we think of as like short-term experiments with travel to destinations that are internationally recognized hubs of remote working community. And their goal is to develop some kind of human capital so that they can see if there's a possibility to engage in remote work full time. And so work tourists use their paid vacation time around where I live. People take their paid vacation time. They go to Disney World, right? They don't take paid vacation time or severance pay from a layoff to look at work reinvention in another country. You know what I mean? <laughs> so this is a, a this is kind of an interesting idea. Work tourists are people who are planning to quit an unsatisfying career path where they've recently quit or they were laid off. And we met work tourists. Some of them had no intention of leaving their jobs back home, but they wanted to see, is it possible to work remotely on a passion project? Like, let's say a podcast or write a book or, um, you know, start some sort of blog or something like that. So we're sort of contrasting them from traditional vacationers. And I, I tell people this story all the time that when I was in Bali, when our family was there, a, a friend of mine who's from Australia visited us. And I said, oh, would you like to see the co-working space where we're doing our field work? And she was like, no, I'm on vacation. And I was like, oh, right. Like you're a regular person. You're like a business lady who works like in an office and you're like a manager and you don't like you have, you know, you don't view it as fluidly as like the people here do and you would never want to spend like you want to spend your time like like many people um like going to a resort and drinking and all that kind of stuff you don't want to go to a talk about like um you know a talk about building an app or a talk about learning how to write um or journal or um learning about a different skill set that you may not have and you may never want to pursue but you're still interested in meeting other people who are doing that um so so that that work tourism part is is a really interesting phenomenon i think because it past research on expats has really looked at people who were like on an international assignment with a company Right. And they're like, the research is like, oh, yeah, you know, what are the living conditions for expats? How does their spouse adjust? Um, you know, what, how, what's their job satisfaction like? It's not like looking at them in this fashion um, as, as, as people who are looking at um, a digital nomad lifestyle. But also, in a sense, then your work also becomes your life. Because you sometimes you don't have access to internet where you need to work, and then you work through maybe a couple of hours per day, and then you perhaps relax. So in this in this sense, it can be viewed from both sides, can it? Are, what are you saying? Are you saying like you, there's a danger to it because you're um, you don't have any boundaries and you're just always working? Yes, that's right. Or well, yes. or maybe you love your your work so much that it's just a part, integral part of your life. 
Yeah. And, and people do, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat it because some people say some, sometimes it is really hard because they do find themselves just working all the time or talking about work all the time and their social <laughs> lives revolve around work. And, and that is a, a risk of this lifestyle is that a lot of times people came there planning to develop other parts of themselves and they ended up not doing that because they got so much work that more than they had anticipated and they found themselves having trouble saying no to it. Um, on the other hand, uh, I would say for the most part, that is a challenge and people have to work on that. But I think for the most part, people really enjoy being around people who are energized by the work they do and don't find their work to just be a paycheck. Really interesting. So all of these different layers, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think it's. I mean, work tourism. I I do want to say, you know, there there are lots of critics of some of this. I mean, the idea, you know, there's definitely like a a superficial branding, uh, Instagram aspect to it, influencer aspect to it, viral campaigns around you know, for instance, office of the day where people will post pictures of themselves with like a laptop with a coconut um, on the Mm. beach, kind of like, um, you know, there's a social media ecology around nomadism that a lot of people feel negatively about, but that's not mainly who we encountered. I mean, and I actually don't consider those kinds of people to be really digital nomads. They may call themselves that and they have blogs and travel sites and things like that. But that's not mainly who we encountered. And that's largely um, just a way to sort of discredit or perpetuate negative stereotypes about people who are doing something that I think is really important in the world of work community. And perhaps a question for Rob. So what do you think whether this work and lifestyle uh, model is uh, sustainable and also environmentally conscious? Uh, those are big questions. Um, I, I think that a, an awful lot of the people who we talked to were um, engaged in working out how sustainable it was. Um, I think that 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 what works on their side is, of course, their commitment to that. And uh, for those people who have skills that they're able to use or a, a business, a successful business that they're able to get up and running, that there's uh, there certainly is. Uh, or does seem to be anyway a sustainability for the lifestyle in terms of their personal success um, for people who are very marginal in terms of skills. And we did encounter some of them as well. Um, obviously it's a lot more of a tricky proposition. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a sort of, a, a sort of human capital part of this whole thing. And then, uh, you know, also on the entrepreneurship side, there's a kind of business success issue. And of course, if your business fails completely and your next business fails, there's, you know, it's a point at which it might not be sustainable, but it's, I'll say this, it's going to be more sustainable in Southeast Asia than it would be in Los Angeles because, you know, the cost of living is just so much lower there. And so what you'll actually see is that, that many nomads, um, you know, that if they're, if they're really struggling at the beginning, places like that can help them to give them extra time to get themselves organized and to, to, to make their lives more successful. And so in some ways, being a digital nomad can be, can be a boon to your life um, in, in those situations because it gives you the flexibility of living in a lower cost of living environment uh, while you are figuring out some of the uh, things that you need to do to put yourself in a position to be successful long term. Um, in, in terms of environmental sustainability, obviously there, you know, nothing that involves jetting around the world on planes 
is particularly <laughs> amazing for the environment. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and, and we should just acknowledge that, right? I mean, you know, if you're going to take around the world trips on aircraft, then uh, you are contributing to global warming for sure uh, and, and climate change. And you're not doing, uh, you know, you're not doing a solid to the, uh, to the environment. Um, but acknowledging that, um, uh, it, it, there's also the angle of the social um, sustainability of it. And, and of course, um, that's a, I don't know how the pandemic will affect that, but prior to the pandemic, it was very much a question in places like Bali, where overcrowding was becoming a significant issue. Um, and, and now with the, with the post-pandemic remote work boom, it's going to be interesting to see, well, what happens um, once there's a surge of people moving into the remote workspace? Well, how will that affect these kinds of communities? Will they be overwhelmed um, with, uh, uh, will they be overwhelmed with uh, new entrants? Uh, and so the sustainability of all that, I think, is, is a, a big question mark. I mean, I think, I mean, one way just to think about it is it's, it's, you know, on one hand, one of the values we talk about with nomads is they're minimalists. So they don't have an SUV. They don't have a house. They're not remodeling their kitchen. They're not, they're not commuting into work and, you know, and doing all of that. So, and they're, and they're, I would say, I mean, they're materialists in terms of accumulating experiences, but not as much in terms of accumulating things. Um, and so on one hand, I would say that their impact is, less. On the other hand, tourism in general on islands, it has a huge impact. And to the extent that nomadism increases tourism, which it does, and that is a, that is a problem for places like Bali, which have a lot of pollution and very little infrastructure to handle that. Um, for instance, they don't have potable water. So people are drinking out of water bottles and plastic is just thrown out and burned and things like that are put in the ocean. Um, and so there is an issue in many places like Bali with obviously tour all tourists coming there and um, any increase in tourism having an effect on the rice fields and the way of life there. And basically like a, a version of gentrification or neocolonialism happening there. On the plus side, I mean, the locals, and we're in touch with many of them from our time there, you know, they're really suffering right now. They rely on tourism. And that's their income, whether we like it or not, that's how they make money. And many younger Balinese people don't want to be cutting rice and doing traditional labor when they could be driving a car or working at a resort, because that's a very difficult lifestyle, the traditional lifestyle there. And so we don't want to sort of exoticize and romanticize the hard labor that is the traditional um, you know, work in Bali that's agricultural, um, and, and sort of, um, you know, we, we don't want to sort of pretend that the Balinese are this exotic old fashioned group of people that would prefer to work in fields all day, harvesting rice. That's not accurate either, especially for younger people. Um, but there is a there is a, a lot to be examined in terms of how sustainable tourism is in places that don't have, for instance, trash collection and recycling. Yeah, definitely. These are really important considerations and there are so many of them. 
Yeah. Uh, it's, and, and there are tensions, you know, again, like we talk about it in the book, um, in one of the, the chapter on Bali, and it's not just Bali, it's any place like this, where, you know, we, a lot of people go to Bali because they love the Balinese people. Um, there, we talk a lot about the culture of Bali and how special it is. Just yesterday, we were talking to a uh, uh, nomad we interviewed who's now in Portugal, um, which is a big um, nomad spot right now and it has been. And she said, still not Bali, though. You know, she really misses Bali in particular. And they do have issues around there with the traffic, with um you know, exploitation of the Indonesian people who live there and sort of having a servant class and using um, geo-arbitrage or Western money and spending it in a place where it's cheaper and what that entails in terms of exploitation. Um, just different norms around gender, around sex, around sexuality, around drugs, around consumption um, that can create conflict and misunderstandings between people. So I, I don't want to, you know, pretend everything is perfect there. Um, there is conflict there. Um, but, but, um, there are also a lot of really amazing things that happen there. The beauty of, of it, the architecture, the art, the music, there's a lot of inspiration about Bali that you just wouldn't have in a place, I don't want to say anything negative about Pittsburgh, but we don't have processions <laughs> of people in batik sarongs surrounding us or gamelan <laughs> music wafting from people's homes at night. And um, it, it's just so, um, the traditions are so around you. I, I remember the first time I arrived there, I was in a taxi cab and they were burning incense on the dashboard while we were driving. Oh and I was like, wow. And like a man with a flower behind his ear, you know, like here, that would be so crazy. And it's it such a great thing for my children to see another way of living and just different ideas about what's masculine and feminine and, and integrating music and family and what's important and how much you need to have to be happy. Um, it's a, it's a lot for people to reconcile, but it's Balinese society is, it's, it's, it is truly the word awesome. It is something that to behold, you know, um, the way they react to things, the way they smile on the street, um, the compounds, the richness of their life. And it's, it, there's a lot for people to learn through travel. And it's a shame that right now we can't travel and people can't do that. But I don't want to say that it's not a big part of being a nomad. And it's not the same as working once again at like WeWork in Manhattan. You know, what you get isn't just from being with the nomads. It's from spending time in this other culture. Um, and, and their culture is very much in tune. You know, it's a lot of paradoxes, but, you know, they wrap their fruit in banana leaves. They heal you with oil instead of medicine. They pray. Um, they have rituals all day long about being grateful. Um, so I, I think that there's something about being in that environment that is very inspiring and calming and um, makes your time there feel really special that you wouldn't have in your more mundane environment at home. But then you have to be disciplined enough to actually do your work, right? 
Right. That, and that is so true that it's so easy to, and I think one of the things is if you're there all the time, maybe that becomes normalized for you. So maybe that doesn't mm. become, um, a distraction, but maybe it just becomes part of your life. Um, especially for the people who are really long-term who are there for over a year. Um, but yes, you're right. It can be a, a huge dis- distractions, not a joke. Lots of people talk about, uh, rituals they have to put in place to focus themselves so that they don't take their freedom and run with it. And many people we interviewed told us that people try out the nomad lifestyle and they can't do it. They just don't have the discipline to do it. They're not getting their work done. They're not meeting their goals. They're not getting the outcomes that their um, organization or their um, boss or they themselves need to meet. So that's a real thing. Not everyone can do that. Um, and I think we're all seeing that, you know, this year, how challenging it is to structure your time and, um, and to work. I myself, I mean, a big thing I learned is I really use like the Pomodoro method, you know, where you put in like a timer on your computer and you work for a 25 minute sprint on a task. And now I have all of my students, um, download that in the beginning of the semester. And I'm like, just do this project for one sprint. And, and it helps them set an achievable goal. So there are a lot of little hacks like that, that they put in place that I think everyone could benefit from during the pandemic. So your creative side is really kicking in. Oh yeah. I, I thought, I mean, it's funny because I think being my age and being around at first, when we would talk about this group to people, they're like, ah, you know, people are like, in fact, we just pitched a piece to, um, you know, like when you write a book, you have to pitch op-eds to try to get people to talk about your book obviously and one of the things we pitched I don't know how you'll feel about this but we pitched this idea like everyone was hating on millennials but guess what with the pandemic we're now learning they were right because <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> don't want to go back to the office they see now that it wasn't necessary to be there till six it wasn't necessary to be bored all day at work. Like one of the things, one of my favorite stories from the nomads is that we interviewed this woman and she said, why is it when I'm done at two, my boss makes me stay till six and I'm just sitting there and I just started a blog at work because I'm just sitting there. And I would tell, I told my neighbor that story and she goes, yeah, that's how work is. I mean, just suck it up, get used to it. You're getting paid. What do you care? And I was like, see, that's the thing. (laughs) There's like, Mm -hmm. there's a big difference in these two people's attitudes about work. One person's like, yeah, work sucks. Like, that's how it's supposed to be. Like, what do you care? You're getting money. And another person is saying, but I don't want to just sit there doing nothing. I want to develop myself. I want to be busy. I want to be busy doing something that uses my brain. I want to improve. I want to challenge myself. I want to make mistakes and get better at things. That's a very different mindset about work. Yeah, Yeah, so uh, can we bring some of the better aspects of the digital nomad lifestyle back to where we are rather than going somewhere looking for it? Can we just bring it home? Yes, I I certainly think we can. Uh, Rachel, maybe you can take this one. Oh, okay. I thought you would want to take this one. Can you bring them home? I mean, yeah, I mean, like one of the things that we talked about was like, for instance, um, you know, your workplace, um, how can, you know, yes, we're confined at home and believe me, I don't really want to be home all the time, but how can you make your home a place that is hospitable to doing work? 
So for instance, at my job, in my office, and there are people, even academics, especially like male academics, I've noticed often want to escape their families and be in the office all the time. <laughs> and uh, I've noticed that, if that's my opinion. Um, but I, you can't burn a candle at your office. You can't have your dog at your office. You can't play loud music at your office or music you may want at your office, or many of us can't. Um, so what can you do at home to make your workplace enjoyable? Um, I exercise between my work spurts in a way that I would feel uncomfortable doing at work because I would be sweaty and it would be disruptive and it would be embarrassing. Um, I might, instead of taking a shower first thing in the morning, I might take a relaxing shower between two work sprints, you know, things to like pace my day that make my work feel, the flow of my work feel enjoyable to me, you know, and thinking about whatever that means to you, you know, and, and there may be people that love, and I know lots of people do, they, they miss the office and they want to be there nine to five and have chat, you know, chat with colleagues at work. That may be what some people want to do. I'm not like that, but some people may want to do that. Um, another thing I would say is, you know, just thinking about your workflow in terms of when are you productive? I mean, I know nomads who we interviewed who get up at six o'clock in the morning and do their productive work then, because that's when they really feel like they're fresh, productive, creative, full of energy. That's when their best work time is. And then they're done by like noon or one on their big tasks. And then they'll just save their worst hours for like email and administrative stuff. And so you can do that if you have work flexibility, whereas if you have a regular job, you really may not be able to do that. You know, you may not be able to control how you spend your time in terms of your energy levels and creativity. Um, so, so the, those are some, and then the third thing I really like to focus on is one of my favorite things that, um, people told me about why they like Bali is, you know, they enjoy, you know, they'll do some work and then they'll take a break and they'll go for a walk on the beach, which the co-working space, one of them is right by the beach and they'll go for a walk on the beach for half an hour, or they'll go surfing for an hour, or they'll go for a lunch and sit outside for an hour. Or they'll meet with a friend and talk for an hour or they'll get a massage or something like that. And so it's thinking about taking a break during your day. That's a meaningful break, not eating a, a sad salad at your desktop, you know, while you're answering emails and not even remembering what you ate, but like having some time to rejuvenate in nature, in sunlight, with fresh air, wherever that may be. I, I, I'll give you an example for you, for me, right before I had this meeting with you. Rob will tell you, I ran for 25 minutes. I got in literally like two minutes before our meeting because I knew I would be better in our meeting if I had gone for a run. And you can't see me, so you have no idea how I look. Um, but I, I feel great. I feel like I got my workout in and I'm raring to go and I feel energized and excited to be talking to you. Um, I could not have gotten myself up early to do that. I don't know if I'll feel like doing it at night and I have kids and it's just not always possible to do it then. So I did it when I could do it and I enjoyed it. And I, I would encourage other people to do that. And if possible to do it with a like-minded other don't, if you don't want to do it with yourself, do it with a neighbor who you actually like get together with that person and go for a socially distant walk and enjoy the time together and, and if, if that energizes you, great. If you get energy from being alone and listening to a podcast, do that. 
but get out in nature and you know, use that time in a way that you wouldn't normally be able to do at your office um, for many of us. And not every, you know, some people will say, I can do all this at work. So this, this isn't really relevant to me, but I find that that's mostly not true. You summarized it so perfectly well uh, here, which actually brings us back to the beginning of our conversation, where you mentioned that having the freedom to do the work which is value, valuable and meaningful to you and have the freedom to choose how to do it are the one of the aspects of the digital nomad, nomad lifestyle, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so the way my, obviously right now I have, Rob and I both have jobs where we have tenure um, and there is flexibility right now. But of course, one thing that makes us different from most nomads is we have two small children. One is in first grade and one is in fifth. And they're in school, albeit this week it's online. Next week they'll be in class a little bit, I guess. Um, so we, as much as we criticize conventional school in a lot of ways, and we agree with nomads' criticisms of it, our kids are in conventional school. And that would be a very big change for us um, to take them out. And of course, once the um, once COVID is under control, hopefully, we'll be back in the classroom. And so we wouldn't be able to do everything online unless we quit our jobs or unless something radically changed and we became 100% online um, at our institutions, which I doubt would happen because a lot of our value is viewed as what we do in person. Um, however, we still have summers where we're off for months at a time. We have breaks at Christmas, um, and then we get to go on sabbatical every six years. And so there are aspects to our jobs that are really different from other people, especially in America, where we can, tra we can travel if we would want to prioritize our budget that way, and if we would want to if we would want to do that um, and, and do that with our children. I think many people get really caught up in their schedules here and get really caught up in, well, the kids are in their sports and the kids have their friends and we have all these rituals that we have to do every single year. And um, I don't think we're as tied to that as maybe a lot of people are. So I think we're more open to it. Just the fact that we did this project at all shows that we're more open to it. And I think that we're, it's an ongoing conversation we have about future collaborations involving um, studying, working, remote working and, and from different locations and things like that. Yeah, but that would require a huge change for us if we quit our jobs, which we've never really considered doing. And Rob, would you be able to put yourself in that uh, nomad uh, lifestyle mindset? I mean, I think there's a, a certain part of the mindset that comes naturally to us as academics, and that is the, the part of the mindset that's about controlling your schedule, about feeling freedom to do the work that you want to do, um, about uh, feeling uh, a, a sense of, of inner drive for what you want to do and proactivity about what you want to do uh, in terms of making your life happen. And so in that way, I feel... Um, that I can easily relate to the nomadism. Uh, you know, in terms of the travel, uh, I think Rachel summed it up well in terms of uh, the, the things that would be um, the trade-offs involved there. I wouldn't say that I am as oriented towards travel as the average digital nomad at all, but I do think that um, <laughs> I, I, uh, uh, I've learned a lot about 
um, ways that you can travel successfully and even ways you can travel successfully over long distances with children um, from engaging in this uh, 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 research and engaging with this community. And, you know, I think that a lot of what I take away from it is how can I um, think differently about my work, think, think about my work more expansively, um, how can I think about helping others, think, helping young people in particular to think about imagining their work lives in a new way? Um, and we always we always talk about how, oh, you're not just going to be in one organization for 30 years from now on. That's not that we tell our students things like that. But at the same time, um, you know, this is yet another way to imagine it instead of saying, like, your career is a succession of jobs across different institutions. It's, well, what if your career is really a portfolio of different projects that you put together? And, you know, some of those might look like jobs. Some of those might look more like gig work. Some of those might look more like passion projects uh, of things that you're excited about um, and that your work life is really a collection of those different kinds of experiences rather than something that's tied to a specific employer and its organizational culture and its job title. I think one thing I'll say is like, so one of the values that nomads have, and that's why it's in the title of our book, is freedom. That's like the unifying value of nomads. And many nomads, unlike us, they tie their view of, we also like our freedom, especially with regard to work. I think Rob and I are pretty extreme on that. But they tie their view of freedom to a lot of unconventional choices that reject societal scripts about work, but they also reject scripts about gender, monogamy, marriage, children, suburbs, materialism, schedules, schooling, education aging, adulthood. These are not things Rob and I have mainly rejected. <laughs> so for them, like they have this um, attachment to freedom rather than security. And as I might've mentioned that I think professors are people that like security and that's why they seek out tenure line jobs. Um, they have an orientation to the future that is very different from ours. Um, Here's a quote from one of our nomads. He says, I was 37. All my friends started moving out, the, out to the suburbs of London. My social life started to dry up. People were having babies, that sort of stuff. And, and this idea of um, you know, people talking a lot about overprotective government rules in the West. Um, people talking about, uh, I, I, this was a really common refrain, but feeling like... Um, a career track job made them feel like they were in a zoo. They were caged. They have no freedom anymore. And then people even talking about free feelings of elation when they got downsized from prestigious jobs. So one person said it was in the top five or three days of my life ever, like being released from a prison. It was a fantastic feeling, you know? So I don't think Rob and I mean, certainly there are aspects of having a tenure line job that feel like they call it the golden handcuffs or whatever. But um, I think for the most part, we're not like that. And and I think that, that the people that um, we talk to feel very burdened with social obligations of conventional life that don't bother us as much. Excellent. So it's all about evaluating your weaknesses, your strengths and what you really want uh, from your career and your life, isn't it? A lot of, a lot of, I mean, honestly, one thing I love about digital nomads is they're really, the amount that they work on self-awareness and not to say they achieve it, 
but they are really trying to evaluate what they want. And for some people, and this is really hard for people to understand, because in sociology, we got some pushback from reviewers like, well, they just have gig jobs. And what about healthcare and benefits packages and stability? These aren't good jobs, you know, that kind of thing. And it's like, that's your view. What good to them is a benefits package if you hate your life? That's exploitation to them, you know? And so, you know, having a job that's boring, having a job where there's no creativity, where you're just planning stuff for some agency and, you know, you know, that, that doesn't have, you know, there's no personal growth at your job, but there are benefits. That's not, that's not a good life to them. You know, and so I challenge, you know, people who want to sort of define a good job as a job with benefits to to sort of ask themselves, you know, about the other side of things. Um, what if gigs and freelancing makes you happy in a way that a job with benefits isn't making you happy? And that takes a lot of courage to do that. Um and that's so really I, inspiring, actually, to uh, all of us young career researchers as well, that you can combine some of your aspects of your work with uh, being a little bit more free from conventional um, setting. Yeah, and I think for, uh, forgive me if I am not positive, are you, again, are you working your dissertation, Galena? That's right, PhD. Yeah, and so, I mean, like, one of the things I think that I was not really taught when I was going through graduate school, but that I encourage people now is, like, think big. Like, why can't you be the one that your dissertation becomes a, an influential book? Why don't do a project that's just your advisor's, you know, project that you're cutting a piece off of because that's the fastest thing to do or you'll get a publication in a top-tier journal? Or you can do that, but do something that you really enjoy, that you're really interested in, that, you know, based on your own self-assessment of what is going to make you happy. Um, what, you know, don't focus on your advisor's goals for you only. I mean, of course, you want to listen to that. But thinking about, you know, what your views of what your career should look like, where you should live. I mean, I remember when I was in graduate school, I think it was my first year, someone told me, um, when you go on the job market, which was so far off to even have that conversation, but they said, and this is a very successful person who I will not name. He said, he said, it doesn't matter. You know, you want to get to the very highest ranked research one institution. And if it's, it doesn't matter where it is, if it's in Iowa, if it's in Alabama, if it's, you know, you know, whatever rural place that on the place hierarchy, some people may view negatively, you don't take it because that is the best job and you don't consider place. And I remember feeling, you know, uncomfortable with that and thinking to myself, well, that's your priority system. But what if a place matters a lot to me? And what if, you know, um, I can't find my tribe there and I can't find very easily my people there and I'm not comfortable there and the things I like doing aren't there? Um, you know, and it's just so arrogant to tell students that that's, that's the way that they need, everybody needs to choose where they go. And that's just not true. And I, I, I think a lot about that kind of careerist advice that I was given at my institution. And, um, you know, and, and in some ways I, I followed it and, and it, you know, there are different results from that, but it's interesting thinking about 
like what motivated someone to tell me that and how different I am as an advisor where I would never say that to somebody. It would never even occur to me to say that because I, I recognize there are different reasons you choose where you want to work. Um, I'm so glad I'm so glad you mentioned that and put really put this message across that we can save the world and change the world for better and learn maybe sailing or swimming at the same time. Yeah, and that you you, you know, know part of the joy of doing what we do is sharing our work and not just talking to people exactly like us and um, but also getting support. Academia, in my opinion, is a very cutthroat, competitive, tear-down environment a lot of times. It's a lot about being critical, however you want to define that. And one thing that's refreshing about nomads is, and some people don't like this about them, that they're not critical enough, but it's nice to be in a place where people are mostly focused on being pretty supportive and sh and cultivating um, a reputation for generosity and supportiveness around people's ideas. I'm from an environment that's much more like, that's a bad idea. You can't do that. You'll never get a job. That's ridiculous. You know? <laughs> that's sort of my socialization, I would say. Um, and I think it's, I think it's interesting to think about what students need from us and how we can help them with their dreams and help them also dream bigger and encourage them to think about doing a, a dream project now before they have a family and while they have the time. Um, and and Rob, you know, what would you be your messages to the young career researchers? I, I think it's also important. Um, I would echo what Rachel said. And I also think that something about nomads that impresses me is that these are people who are positive, but they're not blind to the stakes involved. Um, right. These are people who understand what they're giving up. They're thinking about the trade-offs. They, they know what they're going for. They know that it's hard and they've decided that they're willing to put in the work to, to, you know, to go for it. Uh, and, and I think that the message I would give to, to young people is, you know, what are you willing to go for and what are you willing to do to get there, Right. Uh, this is something that uh, I talk about with students all the time when they want to go for low, low probability careers of one sort or another, whether it's in entertainment related businesses or something like that. You know, wh what is it that you're willing to do? Where are you willing to, you know, to start off? Where are you willing to put yourself? How are you willing to network yourself? Um, you know, what kinds of things are you willing to, um, you know, to, to work at in order and, and how hard? in order to get yourself uh, where you want to go. And, and it, it's true that uh, oftentimes if we talk about researchers now, um, you know, the simpler path uh, and the more secure path is to peel off a piece of the advisor's work for the dissertation. That's the thing that makes sense. And that might be, make this make sense for lots and lots of people. Um, but um, if, if that's all there is, right, then, uh, you know, is that going to be satisfying to you? Um, are you going to be happy with the career path that that puts you on? Um, if not, what else can you do uh, either instead of that or in, in augmentation of that that will put you on a path that's uh, that's that's for for you? And what you know, what are you willing to do to get there? It's not just uh, you know a magical thinking of uh, of I I want it and therefore it's coming to me. Um, although some people will say words like that, if we look at what the nomads actually do, um, they're really out there putting their lives on the line for their vision of their, of their work future. And I think that that deserves respect and that we all um, should think carefully 
uh, in our own lives about, you know, what is it that we're willing to, you know, really stake something on um, to have a, a, a future that that is attractive to us. Yeah, the, the the idea of being around people who are super positive, <laughs> you know, I think in academia, it's a very like, we kind of make fun of people like that a lot. And, you know, we think like being um, negative is just being realistic, you know, and, and especially in sociology, we study a lot of, you know, sort of inequality and a lot of, you know, very hard and sad and um, things that are not easily changed, especially through the individual. But at the same time, in terms of what's useful for you in your career and in terms of, you know, many grad students struggle with mental health problems and things like that. And if you want to be satisfied in graduate school, it's good, I think, to try to escape the culture of naysaying um, if you can and try to figure out ways to be more positive and try to think about the extent to which you're internalizing sort of toxic narratives about what your life has to look like. Um, I, I remember one that I really internalized in grad school is I would see a, a brand new professor that came in the same year I did. Um, he was sleeping on a bedroll in his office. And mm. people really admired that about him. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to be able to do that because I never, first of all, I was the person at slumber parties that fell asleep at 10. And was reading like Judy Bloom books at six o'clock in the morning. I I am just not built to stay awake uh, late, and I was like, I cannot pull all nighters. Like that is not inside of me, and I was scared. I was like, maybe I I can't cut it because I'm not really that person, you know. And I'm not really an all nighter person. I'm not a sleep in my office person. I don't I don't have that, you know. But then I started thinking like, well what if I was learning instead? Like that, that might be what he does, but, but maybe that's just because he's not really like good with his time. And maybe like, do, do I think of him as someone that's happy or optimistic? Um, do I think that he's scared and filled with fear and negativity and worry, you know, and just sort of thinking like, what's his mindset? What's my mindset? What's his worldview? What's my worldview? And trying to get a better sense of separating out what people are telling me I need to do to be successful and surrounding myself with people who, whose lives I'd like to emulate a little bit more. I don't want to be the person that sleeps in my office. And indeed, I didn't take a job like that when I could have. Um, and I'm sure that's not the best job, you know, and I, I, I maybe could have done that, but I don't think for me that would have led to happiness. Uh, it might have led to a lot of good publications um, or not, you know, um, but definitely I've been thinking a lot more about what the nomads have to say about being positive and not fixating on what they call like a scarcity mindset where you're always in competition. And don't tell anyone, like, don't tell anyone about your nomad research before it's in print because someone will try to steal it and they'll take your creative ideas and, you know, everyone has it out for me and, and that kind of thing. I think that that's um, a part of my academic socialization that I'm ready to let go of. And I think that, I think oddly, people in their 20s, millennials, um, taught me that it just uh, outlined the issues in academia in a nutshell and uh, <laughs> how, we, how we need to try and change it yeah I, I pride myself in realism and logic and i think it's really easy to dismiss that kind of viewpoint as like a feminine 
woo-woo spirituality silliness. And I, I, I think that, but if you look at activism, I, I participate in a lot of anti-racism activism. My daughter's black and I teach an anti-racism class and that's built. That's about optimism. The elections in Georgia right now are about optimism. Getting rid of Donald Trump was about optimism. And I think realism and logic are one thing, but it's not good to be pessimistic and cynical. And nobody's going to look up to you and want to be like you. And that's a horrible role model for students and young faculty. So it's positivity isn't just about being optimistic. It's about, you know, knowing that your attitude does matter for your life. And I, I, I really respect that aspect of nomads. You know, I mean, no one talks about effort more than they do, you know, getting shit done. That's like their GSD, you know, Um, know your why. Why are you doing this paper? Why are you writing this paper? No one's going to read. Why are you writing this book? No one's going to read. Why are you writing? You know, why are you what are you in grad school for anyway? You know, why are you here? You know, these are these are great questions. I think people should ask. I love asking my students that when they hate school and want to quit. I'm like, then quit if you don't like it. Don't stay in grad school, please, you know, but I think that we're not supposed to do that because I think we're supposed to say, well, retention rates and let's get them finished and, and all of that kind of stuff. But if people don't like it, I think it's okay to stop, you know, and, um, yeah, I, I think this think is a big takeaway for me from, from the research. Uh, you know, we saw people who had, gone out and, and and gotten the job that you're supposed to want in their field. And they had moved to the top tier city, the New York, the Paris, the London, whatever. They've got the job you're supposed to want, the job that they wanted, right? These are very mm-hmm. career oriented people. Uh, they went about doing it. They worked at it very hard for a period of years. Some of them as much as 10, 12, 15 years. Uh, most of them more like about eight years. And they got to a point where they're like, you know what? I, I hate this. This isn't working for me. I'm mm-hmm. looking up the ladder at the people ahead of me and I'm thinking, I don't want to be like them. That doesn't look good either. And and they mm-hmm. got out. And, and I think, you know, good for you. Uh, you know, a lot of people our age now, we're a generation older than them. We're Gen Xers. And, and, and a lot of people our age now, they're in their 40s and coming into their 50s. And, and they're approaching this point where after 25 years in a job, they're saying, oh, well, you know, I need to do something else with my life. Why is it more... Uh, why why would we give those people more praise hanging in there for 25 years and deciding to make a change than we would somebody who figures it out after eight? I mean, if you're hated after eight and it looks at, you look ahead and it looks bad, why not make a change? Right. One person said to us, like she's on Wall Street, she said, she said, no offense to you guys, but like my boss, who's your age, it, she like described him like coming, you know, coming to her queue with his mug and like just bitching about his mortgage and his, you know, he's not making enough money for his lifestyle and he's not, you know, all this and the cost of living in New York and this, that, and the other thing. And she's like, is this what I have to look forward to? This is like the person who's ahead of me and there's never enough money. There's never enough time. There's never enough stuff there. You know, it's like no one, you know, why would I look up to this person and view this mentor as someone I want to emulate? And I was just sitting there like, I need to think about that. Like, I don't want to role model that to my students, you know, and, and I really, it really sat with me. I mean, I think one of the things that was really hard, you know, a lot of times we do our interviews at 10 o'clock at night and we get off around midnight or something and, or, you know, around that. And Rob and I would have to go to sleep and we'd be, our minds would be reeling with the words that these people said to us. 
and mm. how people our age don't get it, you know? And I was like, okay, I hear you. Like, you're saying that, you know, you're saying that like people like me don't get it and they th- who they think I am. Um, and we would, we would really, you know, sit with what they were saying and really try to internalize how they felt and understand what they perceive people like me to be like as mentors, you know? Interesting. Maybe I, they were studying you at the same time you were studying oh, them. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think we built a lot of great relationships with them just based on like how they would, you know, over the years contact with them, even releasing the book. I mean, yes, there is a lot of critical stuff about nomads in them. And I was a little bit afraid of that. But honestly, I think people are happy because most nomad stuff is just a how-to and it's to make money and it's filled with like a lot of bragging about the lifestyle and ours, we we have a pretty critical take on a lot of nomad stuff in there as well and the dark side of it. Um, and And so I think that's appreciated because anyone who really knows the community knows that it's not, you know, rainbows and puppies, that there are a lot of difficult things about it. There are people who lie about their expertise. There are all kinds of crazy shenanigans and scams and gurus and things like that. And, and we talk about that and, and that's in there. Um, but it's, it's not the only thing and it, and it's definitely not, um, that gets way too much attention relative to to what's also important about that community and what we could learn from that, especially now if, if COVID hasn't taught us that we need to change and adapt. And I, I said to Rob, um, it was like the week, it was like the week where we went into lockdown right before that I had a dissertation defense to go to. And it was like through traffic and tunnels and bridges. And I just said, is there any way I could zoom in for the meeting? And they said, no, no. No, you have to be here in person for this. You have to be here. I was like, okay. And then uh, COVID happened. And like, I get an email, we're going to do this through a Zoom meeting. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, right. Because it could have been done the whole time this way. And this is what all the millennials have been saying. And all the people I interviewed have been saying. And it's just like, it's just mind blowing how little people were willing to entertain a technology that's been around for like a dozen years already, you know, a Skype, <laughs> like, or 10 years or nine years or whatever, you know? Um, and it took a pandemic for people to really trust workers and evaluate what has to be done in person and what does not. And I just, I just find it interesting that that's what it took. It couldn't be that you listen to employees who are in their thirties, you know? As the, as the current meme was going, it could have been an email. It could have. Oh, that's been. Yeah. 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 But I mean, our networks, in some ways, I, I had a conference that was online this year and I was disappointed. Um, but my panel was very intimate. I mean, everyone's faces were there. I got to talk to like all the people in the audience in a way I would never do at a session. Um, and we were all in it together. And there was this sense of community I've never felt in a session. And some of my classes have been this way as well. So it doesn't have to mean that doing it online is somehow necessarily, you know, superficial and non-intimate. I've been in many meetings where I, in person, where I felt very muted, trust me, as a woman in academia. So I don't don't necessarily think face-to-face meetings are always like these pro-social 
environments where, where people feel free to speak. That's a really good point, actually, especially during the Zoom meetings where you don't have the video. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's so much as a woman. I mean, so many of us have talked about this. It's so much less oppressive, like not having to get ready and all the time to get dressed and everything. And, you know, for me with gray hair, dyeing my hair and makeup and clothes that suck me in and whatever it is, you know, it's just nice to like have my mind being actually like the thing that I'm using and not worry about aging and beauty and things like that, that all women or most women, whether they admit it or not, have to deal with and that most men do not. But it also resonates with the part of the digital nomad mindset, right? So being included, so inclusivity and diversity. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a shame that, you know, nomadism is very, not, you know, we have people from, I think, 18 countries in our sample, which I'm very proud of. And our sample is 50% women, which I'm also extremely proud of. But there's Mm -hmm. a lot of ethnic and racial diversity in our sample. And I think part of that is because of who goes into knowledge work, A, and B, who feels entitled to leave it all behind is certainly tied to um, your belief that you're able to do something like this is, and your feelings about security and stuff are tied to social class and skills and socialization. And so I do think like that, that part is a very stratified aspect of digital nomadism, but hopefully in the future as, as like our children are digital natives and things like that, that hopefully the digital divide will not be as strong in future years and and kids are you know doing TikTok and having digital editing and, and things like that. And hopefully younger people from all social classes will be more interested in developing an online skill set and more able to do that than is true right now. Excellent. Okay, so we've taken up a lot of your time. So I would like to ask both of you, what are you working on now and what are your future projects? Well, uh, the book just came out two days ago. So right now, (laughs) we're certainly not over this. (laughs) Uh, You sound like my mean advisor. (laughs) Yeah, we're not ready. What are you doing next? (laughs) We're not ready to put this on just yet. Uh, I think that um, right now, what what we're focused on is trying to bring this to the widest possible audience. Um, trying to make sure that that uh, we can, you know, get this research out there um, to people and bring an awareness of it uh, to connect with people who are interested in these communities um, to connect around issues and 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 demonstrate the relevance of this work to the broader remote work kinds of phenomena that are happening right now in our society and that will continue. We hope and presume post pandemic. I think also that. Um, you know, we're interested in, you know, what we can do to continue this, uh, this line of research and, and understand more about how this could relate to uh, aspects of the future of work um, as, as we find it evolving. And, and so I think all of those things are, uh, you know, kind of the immediate horizon for us in terms of projects that are, uh, you know, related to the book. And because the book is, you know, literally just coming out now, it's a, it, it, you know, we're certainly not finished with this topic. Yeah, I think thinking a lot about remote work and the relationship between remote work and fostering place-based communities of like-mindedness is something we're going to continue to be interested in. It's basically going to be a question 
that's going to go on into the future. I think people are now just catching on to it and we're ahead of it because we've already done research on it. But now what I want to do is really connect with, you know, people, make sure they read the book, make sure, you know, the book is out there. People read and review the book so it gets seen. And so, you know, I don't want the book to just like so many things in academia, it's out and it's over. What's next? You know, I am ready to sit in the space of the book and bask in the glory of the book right now and enjoy that it's out and it's a, you know, it's a years long process. Um, it's a, just a great achievement to have done this as a couple and with our family. And I'm just really proud of us for this. And I, I don't want to move on to the next thing yet. I want to sort of think about what this is going to bring us, who I can connect with and, and what they can, you know, what kinds of conversations we can have about remote work um now you know because at the time we're writing this this hadn't happened and now i feel like we have so many more people to talk to about this because now people kind of know what this is and i'm just really excited to engage and connect with people about the work right now and especially we can't collect data in the middle of covid anyway so mostly so i'm just kind of it, you know, letting, letting, letting it go. Some of my competitive nature around my work and saying to myself, uh, I'm taking some comfort in the fact that no one can do anything right now, or at least I'm telling myself that <laughs> and just being like, you know what? No one can leave. So I can just, you know, spend some time on my Goodreads page, fixing my profile, realizing I don't have an author page, going on the Amazon page, realizing I don't know what marketing is. Uh, <laughs> Like I just, you know, when you, I don't know, when, when the time comes, if you turn your dissertation into a book, one of the things you'll learn is that you have to market it yourself. And that's a really uncomfortable thing to do as an academic. And so we're, Rob and I are just trying to figure out how to do that and how to be comfortable doing that. And um, so we're learning Excellent. a lot about that right now. so go, go go on let let us know where can we find the book where would you go <laughs> yeah it's on amazon and it's also so you can get a digital or a um hardback version and then when you read it um what helps people see it is if you write a review on goodreads or on amazon and then of course for those of you who have social media you know like sharing about it talking about it I would love if people want to have like a book club or something like that in graduate school or wherever that Rob and I would be happy to zoom in and talk. Um, I think it's great for class because it's very, very accessible. There are lots of stories. It's very validating of younger people. And it's very much talking about thinking about work, um, identity, and um, different ways to pivot your skill set. Um, so I think it's very accessible both to undergrads and grad students. And I think it's also very empowering. It's not meant to be a self-help book, but in a way it is because it exposes you to a group of people you wouldn't normally meet. Okay. So I really cannot thank you enough for such a really enlightening and thought-provoking discussion today. So do you have any last messages for our uh, listeners? No, just, you know, just try to try to find a way to work in a way that makes you happy and 
put your best effort out and try to keep a positive mindset as you go through graduate school. It's a, and, you know, it's a really hard thing to do, to structure your time and to do your own work, um, especially after your coursework is done and, um, and it continues into your career, you know, struggling with those things. I think in general, graduate students and faculty are very unconventional people, just like digital nomads. And we reject a lot of fundamental societal values, <laughs> um, I would say, such as materialism and conventional employment and living near our family. Um, and so I think that, you know, you'll find a lot of kindred spirits in our book um, and maybe some people that also annoy you. But <laughs> Rob? I think that um, for the digital nomads, the, the, you know, the really takeaway for everyone is that if you find that the structures uh, of life and society, the, the script that you're being presented with of how your life and your work life should go down is not working for you, you can take heart in the fact that there are other people out there who are finding different ways to do it and that you may be able to find a different way to do it too. Yeah, good. Excellent. That's true. Okay, so thank you very much for joining me today. And I'm sure that listeners are going to really enjoy this book, uh, which oh. is really written in an excellent uh, uh, language, really accessible. And uh, the structure with the interviews is really very pleasurable to read. Okay, thank you. So I'm hoping you're going to have thank a, you very much. a really nice, nice day today. And thank you. Thank, thank you. you.